Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi everyone, it's the end of this season, so we've come to Extra Helpings, and before we get into it, I can see Paul is already chafing at the bit. What have you got, mate? I certainly am, Mikey, because I'm glad to say I've got a few maps for you. you oh, know, here we go. Because <laughs> we did get a few tweets, didn't we? Yes, messages we did. On social media during season seven, and I must admit they were a bit music to my ears, because quite a few listeners pointed out that we had a bit of a disappointing lack of maps recently, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, I've, I've got to admit, he's correct. We have been picked up on like a maps. So go for it, mate. So I've gone through a couple of them. <laughs> well, all of them, actually, <laughs> twice. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> a very enjoyable yeah. afternoon's work, I must say. And I've picked out two which I think cannot be ignored, especially in relation to some of the apps we've looked at in previous seasons. Okay, so the first one, Mikey, this one here, this goes back to our North Pole app, and it's a map from the 16th century, and none other than from... Gerald Mercator himself. Oh, the great map maker. I've heard of him, right. That's right. Now, it's thought this is the first map ever to be centred on the North Pole rather than the equator or lines of longitude or latitude. And it's pretty fascinating in its detail as it includes some of the great myths and legends as well from these times. Yet it presents them as almost historical and geographical facts. All right, I'm with you so far. And don't forget, we will put these maps on all the socials. That's right. So here you are, Mikey. You can see this map. It's got the pole, the North Pole, lying in the centre of a small sort of North Pole Sea. And in the middle of this sea sits a Rupes Nigra et Altissima. Oh, you're back on your Latin again, Paul. Thanks for that. But I'm going to have a stab at this. That means a black and very high cliff. A black and very high cliff, exactly. And this, it was claimed for many years, was essentially a huge black rock made up entirely of magnetic stone. And it was this rock which attracted all the world's compasses and gave travellers and seamen alike the means necessary to plot their course. But interestingly, that's not all, Mikey, because although the pole itself was said to be a sort of towering cliff amidst a small sea, surrounding this circular sea were thought to be sort of four roughly equal quarters of land, which formed a kind of, I don't know, donut around the North Pole and around the North Pole Sea. Okay. Now, of course, we know these days it's all just ice up there, but I suppose if you were a Viking or a new explorer back centuries ago, if your ship ran aground into huge ice floes which you could walk and trap animals on, the chances are you would probably think that underneath that ice somewhere there had to be land. Yeah, fair point. Right, so to be honest, I haven't really got a problem with the thought processes behind most of this map. It was just their way of explaining the unexplainable using the limited knowledge they had at the time. But there is one last aspect, which I have to say I find as intriguing as it is fanciful and bizarre. You see, this donut, you can see it here surrounding the pole, this donut of land, like I say, is separated into four roughly equal quarters. And MacArthur's idea, essentially an idea that had been doing the historical rounds from as early as the 14th century, to be honest, this idea was that you've got four rivers flowing into 
the North Pole, in towards this black cliff. And these four rivers, the force of them pouring into the pole, creates a kind of whirlpool effect, sucking in all the waters around it. In fact, some geographers went as far as to say this whirlpool would suck all the water into the centre of the Earth, and it was this motion which caused the great tides and currents of the Earth's oceans outside the Arctic Circle. Okay, so that's the first one. Yes, and it is one I've seen before and you know, always quite like. But this second map I've got for you today, Mikey, well, this one <laughs> it really is a screwball. I have to say, I wish I'd known about it when you did that great episode on the flat earthers. Because this one, this one takes flat earth <laughs> and blows it, boom, right out of the water. Okay, folks, I'm, I'm having a look at it. I have to say, Paul's not wrong. This one looks something out of, a, I've got to say, a dodgy 60s B-movie sci-fi flick. <laughs> Right, so this, Mikey, this is what's known as the Tetrahedron map. Okay, the Tetrahedron. Look, you've already gone way beyond any of my geometry lessons that I went to. So, so, so what are we talking? Okay, so this is from My Magazine, a publication popular in and around World War One, And this is the edition which came out in May 1918. And this article purports that due to the way the Earth is spinning and the speed at which it's spinning over millions of years, not only has its shape already changed, but also so it will change again in the future. Now, to be fair, the beginnings of this thesis, you know, it does seem to be applying some sort of physics and laws and, and logic. As it points out, the Earth is not a perfect sphere, you know, because the way it spins means the centre, the equator, is noticeably fat and bulges out a bit. So it isn't actually a perfect sphere after all. And also, and I do quite like this, Mikey, the opening paragraphs in this article, they spear your flat earther mob pretty much straight through. Listen to this. Many strange visions men have had of the world since it began. They used to think it a disc floating in water. There are still stupid people who believe it is flat. <laughs> but then I'm afraid for these guys, their own stupidity takes over and soon they're talking tetrahedrons. I'm still getting my head around this whole tetrahedron stuff. <laughs> OK, the term, in fact, they actually use is a tetrahedron well. A well? Right. Uh, OK. <laughs> so this is how their reasoning, their hypothesis goes you see they say the reason why the earth is a globe now with its fat bit in the middle bulging the reason why it's taken this shape is because it's mathematically the most natural the most geometrically efficient shape to contain and absorb such bulk as there is on our planet but building on these scientific observations, they say that as the Earth and the Earth's centre is still cooling... Is that true? Which is, yes, completely true, Mikey. The Earth's core, by definition, has been cooling from the day the Earth span off you know, from some greater mass and became a planet in its own right. So their idea is, and look, it starts off <laughs> almost sensible, their idea is that as the Earth's core cools and condenses, so its shape will change accordingly to fit the new mass, the new bulk area. But then they go even further, and this, Mikey, is where it gets pretty weird. Because according to the writers of the article, while the Earth will change its shape, it cannot reduce its surface area, because the surface area as we know it now, that's fixed. Which means the only feasible way through this is for the Earth to change shape and reinvent itself in a shape with equal surface area, but less mass, less bulk. And don't tell me, what shape is this? <laughs> well, to be fair, they have applied all the mathematical laws, the laws of physics, and they've come up with this crazy shape, this tetrahedron. So you can see here, it's a sort of pyramid 
with round edges, a bit like a sort of lopsided spinning top, I suppose. But like I said, when you see it in the flesh for the first time, it also looks a lot like one of those weird cartoon drawings from some early Dan Dare comic. All right, well, I put my MacBook away now. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Mikey, um, but you want to go back to that other episode about St. Augustine. Yes, exactly, mate. Augustine of Hippo, the Bishop of Hippo. And look, we all know this man is described as one of the greatest thinkers of the early church. You know, the, the bloke who bridged the gap between ancient philosophy and, and Christian theology, mm. relying heavily on the works of Plato. Well, for me, it's a comforting fact that Augustine failed high school Greek. <laughs> now, we've got to go back. Augustine's born in the Roman province of Numidia, modern-day mm. Algeria, and mm-hmm. we know it's the 13th of November, 354 CE. Now, as you said in that episode, he was a Berber, but the household he grew up in was very heavily Romanized. Mm. His mother, Monica, was a Christian, and his father, Patrick, well, he was a pagan. But guess what? Dad converts to Christianity on his deathbed, ah. as was the habit of the time. Now, when Augustine was at home, He'd have spoken both Latin and Punic. You know, Punic being the language that the Phoenician settlers had brought to that area thousands of years before it even was Carthage. Mm. Now, he would most definitely have spoken Latin at school, first at Thagaste and then later at Abenduras. Now, he would remember those school days mostly for the cruel beatings and floggings the masters would inflict, particularly when it came to his lessons in Greek. Mm. This otherwise brilliant student struggled with the ancient language, despite the fact that he generally seemed to appreciate the poetry of Homer. After his school days, he would often protest, look, some say a little too much, how deficient he was in the Greek language and how his schooling had scarred him from enjoying the language. He would say, we learn better when freely trying to satisfy our curiosity than under fear or force. Mm. Now, when I say Augustine failed Greek, it wasn't like when I failed year 10 Latin. (laughs) He could actually read the language, but to his dying day, he still needed the help of a dictionary. All right, which brings us to episode six um, from this season, which, of course, was looking at the Kurds, wasn't it, with the mm. Kurdish heroes, kicking off with the big one, Saladin, probably the most famous Kurd in history. And someone who really got the socials really humming. Well, that's right, Mikey. One question that kept coming up was the old trope, wasn't it? Is Saladin the only commander never to lose a battle? And, of course, you know, like most of these historical debates that never seem to end, it depends on who you ask and how you frame the question, i.e., does it count if he's on the leasing side, but he's not the general in charge for the day? Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm not going to get drawn down that rabbit hole. Rather, I want to look at another story which cropped up, and one which I think is worth pursuing, regarding Saladin's various encounters with another group we've mentioned before on the show, the Assassins. Ah, uh, hang on, is this the one about the hotcakes? Exactly. Now, if you remember from that earlier at Mikey, the assassins, they started out in what's modern-day Iran under that old man of the mountains, hassan e sabah and his hideout up in the rocks of Alamut in northern Iran. But quickly, the tradition of the assassins spread, and soon you had groups of assassins hiding out all over the Near East. Right. And the group I want to talk about today, this is the Syrian chapter, led by a guy called Rashid ad-Din Sinan. Now, you see, he commanded nine different fortresses, all based in the Anusaria mountains, which run in a sort of spine down what's now Syria. And these are the mountains that separate the main cities, like Homs and Hamra and Damascus, from the coastal ports 
along the Mediterranean. Now, I'm lucky enough, Mikey, to be able to say that I've actually been to these mountains and been to some of these fortresses on my trips back, of course, in the days before the Syrian Civil War. And back when I was researching stuff on the Crusader castles that were also built during this period, particularly one which is probably my favourite castle in the world, the Crac de Chevalier. Anyway, I won't go into that because these assassins, they're hiding out in their own fortresses and it's throughout the whole period of the Crusades. And the interesting thing is that although they were Muslims and sworn enemies of the European Crusader knights and, you know, your Crusader kingdoms around Jerusalem and Antioch, that kind of thing, at the same time, as well as being anti-Crusader, they were also no friend of many of the Muslim leaders, particularly leaders like Nuruddin and Saladin. Why? Well, you see, you remember how he said in that ep that Saladin, like most Kurds, was a sunny Muslim and as such, yeah, actually turned his forces on the Fatimid rulers of Egypt because they were the head of the Shia Muslim world. Well, the assassins, they're not just Shia Muslims like the Fatimids, they're actually part of the radical Shia Muslim sect, the sort of extremists of their time, if you like, the Ishmaelis. Right. Right, so once Saladin has attacked Egypt and declared his intention to overthrow the Shias, the Fatimid dynasty, so immediately he becomes public enemy number one for the Fatimid's Shia brothers-in-arms, the assassins. Which I'm assuming is not a good thing to be. Right, so no sooner has Saladin conquered Egypt, he has to lead his army in August 1176 up into the An-Nusairiya range and lay siege to the assassins' headquarters, which is the fortress at Messiah. Right, so they're laying siege and Saladin has all his guards supplied with link lights surrounding the camps and then he has chalk and cinders strewn around each of the tents, including his own, to detect any footsteps by any would-be assassins. Now, there are a number of accounts of what happens next, Mikey, but according to one, Saladin's guards, they notice a spark glowing down the hill from the fortress at Masif, and then this glowing spark vanishes amongst the army's tents. Where it goes, nobody knows, but almost immediately, Saladin awakes to find a figure leaving his tent. He sees that the lamps and candles in his tent have been extinguished, and beside his bed, some people say it's underneath his pillow, are lying these hot scones of a very distinct shape, peculiar to the assassins, with a note at the top pinned by a poisoned dagger. And this note threatens, OK, I'm not going to kill you now, but you will be killed if you don't retreat. You've got to love a scone-based death threat. <laughs> so, so, mate, did he? Did, did Saladin retreat? Well, yes, we certainly know he withdrew, and the assassin fortresses were, yeah, they were left unharmed from that point onwards. But the chances are, Mikey, it was actually all down to Saladin's uncle, Sherku. Hang on, didn't we mention him in the episode? He was the general in Nuruddin's army. Yes, the guy who trained Saladin, exactly, his uncle, Sherku. Well, by this day, Sherku's now the governor of Hama, one of the cities in Syria, and it seems the real story is that he mediates some sort of peace agreement between Saladin and this guy, Rashid Sinan, the head of the assassins, and he persuades both men that their rivalry is nothing compared to the need to defeat the infidel, yeah, the crusaders, and thus he persuades them to a sort of temporary truce until that common enemy is defeated. And in fact, it seems that Saladin and Sinan did actually maintain a cooperative relationship afterwards with the assassins supplying various contingents to bolster Saladin's army in a number of decisive campaigns. Yeah, but did he eat the scones? <laughs> Actually, Paul, I'm quite glad you mentioned Saladin, 
because there's been one crusade story I've been dying to tell for ages. It's, okay. it's not from the Third Crusade. It's from the early years. In fact, from the end of the 11th century. Mm-hmm. Part of what's gone down in history as the People's Crusade. Yes. You're led by that charismatic Peter the Hermit. Mm. Uh Around about 1096, also known as the Pauper's Crusade. Okay, you've got to remember in 1095, you've got Pope Urban II at the Council of Claremont calling all the Christians to rise up and retake Jerusalem. Yes. Well, this also ties in with a little bit of, remember it's 1095, middle, I can't pronounce this, mil, Paul, you pronounce it, mil, millenarianism? Millenarianism, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but think of it as Y1K. <laughs> so along with the usual knights and nobility, you've got like around about 100,000 common folk all heading off to the Holy Lands. Well, actually, what they do first is they set up a string of pogroms against the local Jewish community. Only a few make it to the Holy Lands, and those that do, well, thousands of them are overwhelmed by the Turkish army near the village of Drakon. Mm. But I don't want to talk about that today. As you might expect, it was not that well-planned or organised, and, well, there were more than a few nutbags along for the ride. (laughs) Which brings me to... The Sacred Goose. Goose. Yeah. We know this from the writings of Albert of Aiken, who chronicled the People's Crusade. Mm. I'm going to quote here. There was another abominable wickedness in this gathering of people on foot, who were stupid and insanely irresponsible, which it cannot be doubted is hateful to God and unbelievable to the faithful. Mm. Here we go. They claimed that a certain goose was inspired by the Holy Ghost right? and a she-goat filled with no less of the same. Mm. And they made them their leaders for this holy journey to Jerusalem. They even worshipped them excessively mm-hmm. and as the beast directed their courses for them in their animal way, many of the troops believed they were confirming it to be true according to the entire purpose of the spirit. Mm. Now, some of these people were convinced either by seeing or hearing the story about, I can't believe I'm saying this, how the goose, when it entered a church in Cambria, waddled immediately up to the altar. This whole goose crusade was well, it was dismissed as uneducated peasant folly mm. by the Christian chroniclers. However, for the Jewish writer Solomon Bar Sims, it's different. He sees the goose as another symptom of the crusader mania that had gripped Europe. He writes, One day a Gentile woman came bringing a goose, which she had raised since it was newborn. The goose would accompany her wherever she went. The gentlewoman called out to the passers-by, Look, the goose understands my intention to go straying and desires to accompany me. The burghers and the peasants said to us, he means the Jewish community, Now you will see, these are all the wonders which the crucified one works for them, meaning the crusaders. To Solomon Bar Sims, the goose was a portent of the dangers to come for the Jews of Europe. All right, well, that brings us to the last episode of the series, doesn't it? Your episode on Howard Hughes, Mikey. Yes, mate, but before we get to Howard, someone asked, you know, are there other eccentric billionaires or is it just Howard Hughes and Elon Musk? Mm. Well, of course, we've had eccentric billionaires for ages, but one I really quickly wanted to talk about was one that often gets overlooked in history, mm. a woman called Hetty Green. Mm. I'm talking about the later part of the 19th, early part of the 20th century. Now, Hetty, she came from money. Her dad was an investment banker, mm. but she takes to it like a proverbial duck to water. Or even a goose. Now, mate, she's no goose. She's actually known as the Queen of Wall Street. She's such a canny investor. Mm. Also, too, she's a major real estate mogul in New York. Mm. But the other thing she's really known for in Manhattan is being a waiter's worst enemy. Ah, 
Hetty, when she died, was described as the greatest miser of the Gilded Age. She would constantly harangue waiters, waitstaff, maitre d's. She would never pay the full bill (laughs) to the point where she was actually barred from most of the good restaurants in Manhattan. Right. What's the thing? She didn't have anywhere permanent to live, so she often just slept in vacant apartments. She dressed really poor. She would wear a dress that almost fell off her. People thought she was homeless. In fact, one of the weirdest stories about Hetty was in the later years of her life, she would walk around the streets of Manhattan carrying a bucket filled with oatmeal, Mm. which she would then heat up on a vacant radiator, and that would be her meal. Wow. But, mate, by the time she died, she was estimated to be the richest woman in America. All right, folks, it's time to finish off. And, Mikey, you've got one last Howard Hughes story. Yes, mate, uh, time for one more. And it's, it's to do with a guy called Clifford Irving. And it shows that not only was Hughes a howler, but there were so many howlers in his orbit. Mm. Now, Clifford Irving was a writer. Mm-hmm. In 1972, McGraw-Hill published Clifford Irving's book. Now, it was claimed it was an authorised biography written by Irving and based on long-standing correspondence and interviews with Howard Hughes. Right. Now... Irving, like many of those people that comes into Hughes' story, is another larger-than-life character. He was the son of a prominent New York cartoonist. Mm -hmm. He'd been a copy boy at the New York Times, a door-to-door salesman for cleaning products. He'd sailed around the world as a young man. He'd he'd ridden horseback through Tibet. Mm. He was a novelist, a Mideast correspondent for the NBC, and he lived on Ibiza where he had met three out of his six wives. Now, the theory goes that a neighbour on Ibiza, the Hungarian art forger, Elmer Dahori had given Irving the inspiration for his scheme. You see, like I said, the book Irving had been commissioned to write by McGraw-Hill. This was, so Irving had promised them, this was supposed to be an authorised biography of Hughes with unprecedented access, which in the early 70s was pretty much the holy grail within the book world. Mm. Yes, yeah, with Hughes being such a recluse, never giving so much as an interview, right? Right, and when I say this was the book that every publisher and his dog wanted poorly, I'm talking in advance from McGraw and Hill to the tune of a whopping $750,000. Wow. Yeah, that's still a lot of money for a book advance right now. An absolute small fortune back then. But the thing was, Paulie, Irving didn't have Hughes' authorization at all. He'd never actually met the man. Okay, so, so then what's his scheme? And, and who's this Elmer guy? Well, here's the thing. Like I said, Elmer was a forger and he'd made his career passing off copies of Picasso's, paintings by Matisse and also Mogliani. And Irving had chronicled all of this when making Elmer, his neighbour on Ibiza, the subject of his 1968 novel, Fake. Ah, right. So Elmer's a con. Precisely. And Irving, he's taken a look at this guy and said, well, if he can fake masters, I can fake an authorised biography. Why not? And it's not just McGraw-Hill Irving dupes, Paulie. Life magazine is also writing checks with the intention of publishing excerpts from the book in the run-up to its release. But what's Irving going to do? Is he going to pluck it all from thin air? Well, he and his research assistant, a guy called Richard Suskin, they, they begin gathering old news stories, look, stuff that was on the public record, but also too, they started taping fake interviews with Suskin playing himself and Irving playing Hughes. Right. So he has the publishers convinced that he's a direct line to Hughes. He even racked up expensive trips to Mexico, Puerto Rico and the Bahamas. Now, these are all places that Hughes would often frequent to supposedly interview Hughes. But he was mostly just spending time with his mistress, the (laughs) Danish singer and actress Nina Van Pallant. Right. He goes so far as to study Hughes' handwriting to forge letters... 
and his long-suffering wife aided him in this. She would actually use a false passport to deposit the publisher's fees into a Swiss bank account under the name H.R. Hughes because wow. they think they're paying Hughes for the advance. Sure. But come on, Mikey, you're not telling me Irving got away with it. No, mate, he didn't. And it's actually Hughes himself who scuppers him. Hughes does exactly what Irving thought he wouldn't do. Irving was convinced that Hughes was such a hermit, he wouldn't stick his head up over the parapet. Right. But as the press speculation was growing in anticipation of the book's launch, Hughes gives a press conference. Well, a Hughes version of a press conference. In January 1972, he gave a rambling, almost three hours long interview over the phone to a handful of vetted reporters. Actually, mate, next time you're in a vintage record shop, keep an eye out for it. The highlights were actually released on vinyl. It's not a great listen. Right, so Irving's cover's blown. Is that the end of the line? It's the very end, mate. Investigators link Edith, his wife, to the fraudulent Swiss bank accounts Mm. and Irving's mistress, Van Pallant. She blows it all wide open when she spills that it was her Irving was with on all those supposed trips to interview Hughes. Ah, right. So what happens? I'm guessing they had to return the advance, which they probably already spent. Not just the money, Paulie. Both Irving and Susskind, well, they end up spending time in prison. Irving serves 16 months of his two-and-a-half-year sentence, and even Edith is briefly jailed by the authorities in Switzerland. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Edith sues Irving for divorce immediately upon her release. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 